today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. We're going to take a slightly different approach to today's podcast. First of all, we have a returning guest. His name is John Audie. He uh, has a fabulous podcast called uh, Behind the Stunts, which if you're not familiar with it, you really need to check it out because it it's an educational thing that really helps to show you how certain stunts are done. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, using slow motion technique and things like that to where you really can appreciate the professionalism and the skills that these guys have to do it. But he's not on to really talk about that today. What we thought we'd do a little bit different today is we wanted to focus on one composer, one that uh, both John and I share an interest in. I'm talking about the composer Henry Mancini. Now, in my view, Mancini is, I, I hear very little talk about him in film music circles. I, you know, not that I'm connected with everyone, but it just doesn't seem like I hear his name mentioned that much. He seems kind of rather underappreciated, and we want to try and correct that today because I do share a love of a lot of his music, as does our guest today. So anyway, without uh, further ado, let me please welcome John Audie to the podcast today. Hi, John. Frank, how are you doing? Thanks for having me back. Um, oh, no, I'm d- delighted. And more importantly, thanks for having me back and, and, and talking about uh, something that's so very close to my heart. I must admit, um, Henry Mancini is a is a big part of my life. It's been a it's been a huge part, really. Um, I will, and again, I will mention to to uh, the, the those listening. I'm going to refer to Henry Mancini as Hank during a lot of this because um, uh, that's how a lot of his friends refer to him. But I think that the reason that I say that is because he is kind of a friend to everybody musically. It doesn't matter mm. what it is that you're doing in life. It doesn't matter whether you are uh, having some having a good time or, or your your life is uh, is uh, causing you concern. Henry Mancini has a cue, a music cue for you um, uh, that you know may be in a situation where it will allow you to uh, look at life slightly differently. I think he's very clever in what he does. And as you say yourself, I don't think he's appreciated enough. Um, certainly in the general circles of of those composers, the big five composers that you could probably name off the top of your head, I would expect him to be in there. Um, although um, general consensus says that maybe he isn't these days. And, and even though he has a reputation for being um, you know, a, a, a composer of romantic music or romantic comedy music, certainly as far as his scores are concerned, he's very adapt at being able to, uh, you know, do action adventure, do science fiction, uh, you name it, he's done it. And uh, I think is, is, is a, is a, certainly was a force to be reckoned with back then in those early days of, uh, of cinema, most certainly um, he was changing the way, that we looked at um, at film and ultimately down the line allowed certain other composers an opportunity to go, hey, well, if he's doing it, I can do it, you know? So he's a, yeah. a, a game changer as far as that's concerned. 
Well, before we get more into his uh, music, I, I think it's only fair that there might be some listeners that didn't hear our first program together. So I was just wondering if you could kind of clue me in a little bit about uh, your background and what's your connection to the entertainment industry and you know what what, what gives you the right to come on this program and talk about Henry Mancini's music. What so maybe just tell us a little bit about that. You're not the first person who's asked me that question. What gives you the right <laughs> to even be anywhere near Frank R. Wilson and his show? <laughs> well, I tell you, um, the um, I'm a I'm an author. I'm a historian uh, in in, uh, in in the stunt industry. That's my my major niche, if you will. Um, and the show is kind of a way of, of me being able to um, look at certain action sequences from a different perspective and be able to analyze it and try and pass that information across from an educational point of view. There's going to be a great many, great many people who watch my show are in the business, and there's also a great many who aren't. So I need both of those people to understand what I'm talking about. I'm very grateful that over over the last few days, in fact, whenever my my YouTube show comes out on a Friday and whenever I do that, I always get little bits and pieces from individuals in the business to go, hey, really enjoyed that. You did that very well. That was great. I enjoyed the way you did this. Thank you for doing that. And that's really gratifying because that means that not only am I getting the message across to those individuals in the business, but also I'm getting that message across to those passers-by who possibly possibly have arrived at the show for the first time. Um, yeah, I find, so, it, uh, I, I, I find it really interesting how you've developed relationships with a lot of these stuntmen mm-hmm. uh, over the years, which really gives you even additional insight to just showing a piece of film and how they did it. I mean, yeah. you, you get the real behind-the-scenes kind of story. Well, that's the thing. It's not just analyzing it, but analyzing it from a stuntman's perspective, because I trained, uh, I was doing training uh, with a number of stunt professionals at the time, but uh, in particular, Roy Alon, who was sadly no longer with us, but was one of those individuals who gave me massive amounts of information and allowed me as a, um, you know, a Joe on the street to be able to look at it from an insider's point of view. And now I've got to the stage where I can't look at an action sequence without trying to break it down, analyze it and go, oh, that was a wire gag or that was done with CGI or, oh, I see how they've done that. And so if I can see it and I'm able to break it down to an audience, then that's that's really what I'm trying to do. And so far, so good. I'm thrilled with it, you know. That's great. That's great. Well, let's let's get into some of the music that uh, that you've chosen today. And, and there are many of which are my favorites in particular. Mm. I, I thought maybe we'd start off with... Uh, Start off with Hatari, and I remember this distinctly. I think even maybe as a young child, I think I saw this movie in the cinema, mm. and I can remember kind of connecting with the music. And so, I believe you've chosen the theme from Hatari. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites. Yeah, because I mean, uh, uh, it's um, it's a John Wayne movie. Firstly, I mean, uh, you know, it's made yeah. in what sixty two. I think it was made in the movie set in the world of of big game hunting. Um, and the idea for those who haven't seen it, and do see it, I think it's a, it's on YouTube. I'm sure you can get a, many of these movies will be on YouTube. You can go and watch them and, and, and have a look at them. Uh, but the idea is that uh, John Wayne and a number of other individuals, including Hardy Kruger, in one of his earlier performances, um, huh. and uh, Red Buttons is in this as well, I seem to remember. Oh, that's right. Um, they catch animals and then they sell them to zoos before a female photographer who's played by Elsa Martinelli comes out to change everything. The idea, I think, is that if she comes out and she takes photographs of, of these game, then a lot of these big game hunters are going to want to come out and kill them for trophies. So the idea was that, well, we may as well you know, get them out to zoos before this area gets uh, too overpopulated with the gung-ho individuals. It's well before its time. Um, as far as that type of subject is concerned, and certainly uh, a subject that uh, Hank hadn't really come to terms with before. It's a very, very different type of movie to what he had done prior to this. Bear in mind that his first picture was was an Abbott and Costello movie, Um, you know? (laughs) Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, that was his first movie, was uh, 1950. Two, I seem to remember. I think it was about 1952. Wow. Um, Abbott and Costello, Lost in Alaska was the name of the picture. Um, oh. And on the strength of those, he was a contract guy back in those days. He was working nine to five for Universal. 
um, as a contract composer and, and so consequently was doing lots of low budget sci-fi pictures creature from the black yeah. goon it came from outer space they were all him um, <laughs> hatari was it was a very different approach and uh, the the score was a was a was a way that he he was using animal sounds and African rhythms to create the backbeat and backdrop to the orchestration that he would put over uh, the top. Um, yeah. Majorly, of course, people will probably know this picture on the back that it was it was the major springboard for a track called Baby Elephant Walk. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I remember so distinctly. Um, and interestingly, the um, uh, it's got a brand new electric keyboard thing called a Kalupi which was a one-off instrument. It was designed for the purpose of, of, uh, of this film. A guy, wow. in, uh, guy in Kansas developed it, and uh, he would bring it to the recording session. They would play it, and at the end of the recording session, he would take it away again. You know, it wasn't left anywhere. It was an absolute one-off. So wow. it's, a, it's a very unique sound for 1962. And if you look at the way in which rock and roll had gone in that, in that era, particularly in America... It's not a million miles away from what they were doing there with those type of sounds, but it's a very clever look at um, at how uh, you can take a big action picture like this with big sets filmed in a big way with a big director and a big star and then have this quirky little sound running underneath it. And, of course, <laughs> the elephants trip-tropping down the track there towards being led by the girl is the, is, is one of those key moments in the picture. It's, it's a lovely, lovely scene, but yeah. his music is fantastic on it. Well, let's, uh, let's have a listen for ourselves, and this is the uh, theme from Hatari. And, again, it's uh, featuring the music of composer that we're going to be talking about today all day, Henry Mancini.
I do love your list, and a lot of these are very familiar to me. Mm. One thing that I uh, I think that I like about Mancini is he's very much it seems to me into melody, so I really like that. Yeah, and I think you're right too that he's he he seems to have the right uh, touch for making the sounds that need to be recorded to, to fit the subject matter. Mm. One that occurs to me is uh, one of the other ones that you uh, chose was the uh, theme from Molly Maguire's. Oh yeah. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that film and why you uh, wanted that on the list. Well, this is, I mean, this is massively important to me for a number of reasons, but I mean, f- firstly, uh, it, the version that we're going to hear is a version from an album called in the pink, uh, which came out in 1982. And it was a duet album with him and flautist James Galway. Um, and they did a number of, uh, tracks, um, many from, from, uh, Mancini's back catalog, and they had been rearranged to accommodate the flute and, uh, James Galway delivering the melody line. Now, I was lucky enough at the time, and my my parents were big uh, Mancini fans as well. This was an interesting thing about Henry. His music um, transgressed generations. So it mm. wasn't just something that appealed to me, but it was something that appealed to my parents, and it was also something that probably appealed to their parents in those early or later periods anyway. Um, you know, because- and, it's, and it's interesting you bring up this particular uh, recording because one of the things I just written down that I wanted to ask you about, and I, I can't claim that I know this for a fact, mm-hmm. but wasn't wasn't Mancini one of the first film composers to put out compilation albums? Yes, he was. Absolutely. He was he was definitely uh, one of those individuals who would hear something. He'd go and watch a movie. What I tell you what. A great example of that, if I may just digress for a second. Sure. But a great example of that. And uh, um, uh, you were talking recently in relation to uh, Nina Rota. Right. He, of course, did Romeo and Juliet. Now, Romeo and Juliet's uh, theme, of course, runs through the picture. It's a massive part of that. what he'd done, and, and, and Hank is the only guy who's, who's ever had a number one single on the back of doing this. And I'll explain that. So when huh. Nina Rota wrote the score to Romeo and Juliet, the love theme was a massive part of this film used time and time again, throughout the picture, Henry gone to see the movie came out and said, he couldn't believe that this song hadn't been recorded because everybody was recording albums back then. And this was back in the day when everybody was recording picture themes. So he was doing a piano album at the time called a whiter shade of ivory. And he recorded it with his own arrangement. And the label thought that the single, the A-side, would be Windmills of Your Mind, which he'd also recorded on the album, of course, from the Thomas Crown Affair. So they put that out on the A-side and Romeo and Juliet out on the B-side. Now, the story goes that there was a rock and roll station out in Orlando, Florida, had one night, for reasons better known to somebody else, but they played the B-side. And the response that they had was spectacular, so much so that it was re-released as an A-side nationally, and the sales went crazy, and it went to number one in the Billboard chart, knocking Get Back by the Beatles off the top spot because it had been there for four weeks. Wow. And this restored Hank's faith in the audience that his music was kind of reaching a, a, a you know, w- would appeal to a whole bunch of uh, different generations. And that's kind of what I was referring to with reference to to his music and this album particularly. This album, In the Pink, which uh, which is the one we're referring to for the track from the Molly Maguires, was played a lot in our house. My parents are Irish, so they were very happy with listening to James Galway. But they also liked Hank's music because of the melody that we touched on earlier. And so there was to promote this particular album. There was a concert at the Royal Albert hall and we went, and I remember sitting there in the Albert hall, watching this remarkable orchestra and James Galway, where they performed the album and they threw in a few surprises too. uh, And they told some terrific stories and it's always stayed with me. You know, the memory of that concert and the, the delicate way that Galway manages to, take the lead line in this it's just beautiful so um th- this is a um a hugely exciting moment to be able to to say 
that you know we're going to listen to this it's fantastic yeah let's uh let's have a listen this is again a, a theme from the film called molly mcguire's once again written by henry mancini You know, we're here. We're going down the hip parade here. This is a. It's just amazing all these uh, cues that you've chosen. Um, one actually, I'm not that familiar with. I mean, I tried to play some of these before we were talking today, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I, I know I've seen the movie, but for some reason, I just don't recall the music. And that is uh, the film's called uh, Santa Claus: The Movie. Oh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your your choice of that for to be on your list again. It's um, for for me Henry. Ma- this is I know that people will be listening to this going, is this guy for real? But Henry Mancini <laughs> is Christmas, right? Uh, that's that's the statement I'm going to make. I'm going to stand by it until I die. Wow! Um, when I found out that in 1985 there was going to be a movie about Santa Claus, I wasn't too bothered about it. I wasn't too fussed. But then I discovered that it was made by the guy who made Superman, the movie, Ilya Solkand. Oh, well, and there the you go. And was by Henry Mancini. And I thought to myself, well, wait a second. You know, this is pretty exciting. And to this day, that soundtrack is the thing that associates me with Christmas. Huh. Um, to have something as magical as as this track, for instance. The, the entire album's superb. I would... The, the movie... Not the greatest movie in the world, right? But massively entertaining. If you just want to sit there and have this stuff wash over you for two hours, it's super. Um, but it's a, a, it's very magical. 
And it's indeed a rare thing, but I, I assure you that the moment that you hear it, you'll be transported back to your childhood because Mancini just gets exactly what's required from a score like this. Um, it's no hit or miss. It's just good old-fashioned excellence as far as the score's concerned. Wow, I'm, I'm going to need to rewatch this film again. Then uh, to... again, I, I think because it's it's a very odd piece of casting in the picture. They've got uh, uh, David Hiddleston, Huddleston, Huddleston. I think is the is the guy who plays uh, Santa Claus. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Dudley Moore is in it, who plays one of the elves. Oh, can, yep, yep. Do you yep. remember this? So you can already go. Hang on, this is quite interesting. And then there's a couple of kids in modern day, and the whole thing because he's obviously delivering presents, and there's this, and there's that, and there's a um, there's competition between Santa Claus and a competing company who are prepared to buy, you know, the rights to Christmas and all of this sort of stuff. There's a whole bunch of bits and pieces going on. But his yeah. score is lovely. Now, incidentally, the um, if you don't have a copy of the score, by the way, I, I have one. I'm ha quite happy to let you have a copy of this because I think it's important that you should have one. Incidentally, the vocalist at the start of this is Aled Jones, who was uh, 11 or 12 when this recorded. Aled is now um, uh, a presenter, a radio presenter, and still sings, does many albums now. But he was 11 or 12 when he recorded this. Huh. And um, he got the job because he was the vocalist on a... On a um, he released a single called Walking in the Air, which was for an animated movie by Raymond Briggs, the author, called The Snowman. Um, and so that's how he got the job. But the vocalist on the film version of The Snowman was my cousin, Peter Orty. What are the, what are the odds of that? Eh? Really? What are the odds of that? So uh, he had a pretty decent career, I imagine, until his voice broke. But that was the deal. A uh, useless bit of trivia, but you should keep that in the back of your noggin. But yes, this... Um, uh, also has a couple of Bond connections because the end title theme of this particular movie is sung by Sheena Easton um, oh, and wow. is itself a lovely, lovely track. Really very good. So uh, I, um, I urge you to uh, uh, put on your bubble hat and, uh, and um, you know, get some chestnuts on the open fire when you're listening to this because it is Christmas, most definitely. Well, yeah, I'm going to have to wait a couple of months until it cools down here in Louisiana. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, I, I will do that. I will do that. Let's, uh, let's have a listen for ourselves. Like this is, I guess this is the theme, correct? From Santa Claus. The this movie? is the opening piece of music from the picture. Certainly. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's sit back, enjoy and have a listen.
This is a cue I'm not familiar with uh, that we wanted to showcase next. It's called Two for the Road. Tell us a little bit about that choice uh, for your list of favorites. Well, it's a the movie is is a movie with Albert Finney and Audrey Hepburn. Of course, um, Audrey had uh, had worked with Henry before uh, on a rather famous picture, uh, as we all know, called Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, it's directed by Stanley Donen, and um, really got the job. Um, it was a chance phone call from Audrey, who called him and said, "Look, I'm doing this film." Um, and um, Stanley hasn't called you yet, and I'd like to, I want to put you forward. She'd got, um, in her contract, I think she had uh, final choice on composer, or something of that. Wow. There was, an, there was an option in her contract that said she could do it. And well, that's so some clout. <laughs> she, uh, she rang him, and she said, I want you to do it, and he said, sure, I'll do it, no problem. Um, so it's a lovely picture. Albert Finney, Audrey Hepburn, um, Hank, once again, delivers a score that just fits the time, the subject, and it is timeless, you know. Um, the uh, his theme, which we're going to hear, is a is a wonderful sweeping string arrangement filled with uh, <laughs> filled with. Um, uh, um, it's filmed. I, I was I was trying to use uh, what was the uh, the producer I was trying to think of. There's a there's a producer who um, um, whose name eludes me at the moment, but he he would refer to. I didn't have full grasp of the English language. And uh, once said that um, this particular uh, music score had warmth and charmth, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a, it's a beautiful piece. It's a, a, a wonderful sense of of where a melody should be and should go, um, because he's opening with some interesting chords, and uh, in certain cases, when you hear the opening chords of a, of a certain piece of music you immediately know whether this song is oh it's a it's a it's a happy type song or it's going to be going in this direction you know that this one's not so sure and so he keeps that suspense there the entire time um and i i haven't seen the film for for a number of years but i do have the score that's the other thing about henry mancini is you don't necessarily i don't have to see a movie of his in order um in order to go, I think I'll have that score because you just know it's going to be worth having, and there's going to be something on there that that you you immediately think, yes, that's that's very good. Actually, and actually, I think that's a good point because sometimes, and and I've talked about this with several guests in the past. I mean, is it especially composers? Do you do you compose music to work with the film, or do you compose music to be you know listenable on an album or something? And you know, most of the time, they say both. But you know, to be honest. Sometimes, you know, to sit down and listen to a score on a CD or whatever, it just doesn't work as well as it does in the movie. And so, no. but, I, but I think in the case of Mancini, I think you're right. It's very listenable. He, he is one of those, those individuals that would have come up with ideas and melodies and tunes, which he would then have kept aside, you know, prior to a production and thought, oh, that's a, that's a good idea. I quite like the idea of this. And that kind of fits. So he's he, I, he would always have been sitting in that. Um, it was only much later on in his career that he actually had a music room in his in his home. Prior to that, he had to he had a sort of an off thing at the back of the garage that um, uh, that was converted, where he had this piano and a little desk and some sheet music, so he could write stuff <laughs> down. Um, but uh, he was always very surprised when he used to go to other people's houses, like Elmer Bernstein and stuff like that, and go, "How?" you've got this room with all this stuff in it i've got the back i've got to go around the cars and through the door at the back and then end up in this little tatty room but he was very clearly very happy in it because he would produce a great deal of his great work here and again this is this is a fine example of that well let's have a listen for ourselves again this is called two for the road written by our uh, guest composer today henry mancini Thank you. 
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. We were talking in uh, preparation for the podcast today that it, it would have been really easy to choose some of the some of the well-known pieces that he's written, you know, like uh, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's and Moon River and uh, even the Baby Elephant Walk that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And also another one he's obviously very well known for and that I love is uh, the, the theme from the Pink Panther. Yeah, uh, and and I love that theme, and I was actually kind of surprised you didn't cho- choose it. However, you did choose another cue mm-hmm. from the original Pink Panther film. So, tell us a little bit about uh, "I'd Better Be Tonight." It had better be tonight. Yeah, or just leading up to that, because the uh, there's, the reason that I didn't really choose the Pink Panther is it's uh, I always feel um, as many do to the point of fact is that it's a very very it's one of the most clever written themes ever you only have to play the intro and you immediately know what's going on you don't even need to play the full the the whole opening introduction just those first bar or so and you go ah i know what that is you know yeah um and the theme originally that the pink panther theme was originally written for david niven's character the phantom it wasn't written for the for the the panther itself it was written for the phantom who was david niven uh, in the film he'd written it before they started shooting now that's how good he was he'd fall he'd fallen around on these notes and had thought hmm that's nice i wonder what else i can do with it and played about with it until he really got a little idea it's a very very simple idea but he then thought to himself, right, I'll keep that. So he'd written that before they started shooting the movie. He didn't know about the animated title sequence, which was to be used wow. for the titles. So it was only afterwards Hank and, uh, um, had said to to Blake, you know, um, what do you want me Edwards. to do? And he says, look, I've got this animated thing at the start. We're going to animate the title sequence and we need something for it. He says, well, I, I think I've got it. And the following day, he put this to it. You know, all of a sudden it was... That was it. it were, they were off to the races. Um, and also, something? sorry, go on. No, I say, isn't that something? I mean, I, I, I did not know this. No, exactly. Fascinating to think that you're not given the subject matter. And yet, quite by accident, he realizes, having looked at the script, that the Phantom character, Charles Lytton, or as he possibly was in the later pictures, but he was known as the Phantom, uh, David Niven's character, was the main character because Cluzo isn't really the main character of the first picture he doesn't really start to become the main character until the third picture really um, yeah the first two are are you know this one and then shot in the dark which is the one after that but um so that was the nature of it and yet he'd still managed to create something very very exciting indeed and of course it also started a great deal of, of uh, wonderful relationships he had with with Peter Sellers and David Niven became great friends. Him and Peter Sellers were uh, impossible together. Apparently, um, they were like ah. naughty school children. 
they they were out this is uh, Ginny his wife uh talks about this in 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 the book and says they were out one night and had a few drinks and ended up performing a ballet on the steps of the opera house in Rome you know <laughs> um and <laughs> peter also asked him why he hadn't got a theme for cluzo he says the the animals got one professor balls has got one why haven't i got one and hank said to him well peter i don't you know um, if you weren't so funny, I'd write something for you. But everything you do, I don't have to put music to it. And later on in the series, because obviously Peter was a bit annoyed that he hadn't got around to it, he actually wrote the Inspector Clouseau theme, which I think starts the, for the first time in Pink Panther Strikes Back. Um, huh. And so, you know, ultimately that was the way that went. Also, Sellers was 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 infamous for giving people nicknames. So uh, Mancini's name was Weirdo. Which uh, he was called quite often, and would often be walking around the set, around the set, or back around the back lot of a studio, and, and you'd hear "Weirdo," and he'd go, oh, and he'd turn round, and there he was, you know. So there was um, there was a lot of time for these pair, and they they got on enormously well. But uh, the piece of music that I chose um, is is actually a, it's, uh, originally in the movie. It's a vocal piece. Um, it had better be tonight, and um, like I say I could have chosen the thing, but I I, I love it. When he does stuff for the track, originally this was sung in the movie by a girl called Fran Jeffries, and the lyrics written by Johnny Mercer. Now, mm. the, the the reason that I like it particularly is that they're in the movie is set in Cortina in Italy, and this particular number has an infectious samba rhythm, uh, which you know rips through the entire thing, and it's got a gorgeous accordion melody. This is the instrumental version. There's a, an accordion melody and a wash with the strings, and it's absolutely glorious. Um, and um, he does that a lot in the Panther movies. It's not necessarily the theme, but he will do a couple of things. In the later movies, what he then brings in is he brings in synthesizer and he brings in electric guitar and he brings in little touches to go, okay, this is still a Panther movie, but now we're in the 70s and now we're in the late 70s and now we're in the 80s. So he brings in little things just to keep playing about with it and keeping it relative to that time period. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. This is a great example of the, the combination between him and uh, Johnny Mercer, who uh, who could open the phone book and write a, a magnificent lyric, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> Let's have a listen to ourselves. And this is from the original Pink Panther movie. The cue is called It Better Be Tonight. Another one that you uh, chose that this is a real favorite of mine, although I was kind of, no, no, no. I shouldn't say I'm surprised because this, this version is beautiful as well. I'm, I'm talking about the film 10 and I think one of the most dramatic pieces of music performed I've ever heard or watched when I was seeing the film 
was when Dudley Moore plays this on the piano. Mm. I mean, my gosh, it's just magical. It's amazing. I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it really is. It really is an emotional performance, and yet the one that you've chosen is is it's it's still it's lovely. It's wonderful. I think it's a great melody. I love the song. Um. So tell us a little bit about some of the background on that. Well, the um, if I had to choose, I, I, I don't want to choose. I've already told you that that, um, <laughs> that the uh, the um, you know the Christmas movie is. Even though I'm not a biggest fan of Christmas, but this is just fantastic. So I'm I'm a big fan of that. Um, there's also a bunch of movies that I didn't choose, which I love. You know, without a clue, for instance, is wonderful. The the Great Mouse Detective, an animated Disney picture, is a oh, wonderful okay. score that he does. Uh, but ten for me, because of the time it is. It's nineteen seventy nine, and it's just that, and, and the fact that that the, the main character Dudley Moore's character is a composer, right? So he's yeah. effectively channeling himself through Dudley's character, um, and being able to sit at that piano and try and work out um, the, the bare bones of this particular tune. There's a couple of numbers in the in the picture which are wonderful. Don't call it love, I think, is one of them. Right. Um, and this particular number, which is called "It's Easy to Say," and it's gorgeous. I mean, it just yes. you know we talk about melody. And if there was ever anybody who didn't understand something about melody, this is the most perfect way I think to ex explain it. Listen to this, and then you will ha and have some grasp of melody. His ability to not only take the tune but again you know uh, with uh, with the, with the lyrics and be able to work such an impressive orchestration and arrangement to it when the strings come in and when everything else comes in now, now, it is now this is the this isn't the version that uh, uh, at the end titles were Julie Andrews and Dudley Moore sang right this is an instrumental. This is an instrumental version, but yes, right. there is a version. There's a there's a there's a version where the two of them do a duo, uh, a duet, rather. And um, um, there's there's another track that Julie Andrews sings. In fact, it's it's pretty much over the initial opening titles because Dudley Moore is in a car and spots Bo Derek for the first time as she's on her way to the church to get married, and. You can see there and then in that moment when he sees her, hook, line, and sinker, he's done. <laughs> She's the only thing in the world, and he can do nothing about it. And, of course, this wonderful Julie Andrews number. And Julie Andrews, oh, my God. You know, she's married to Blake Edwards, fair enough, so she's in the picture. Well, what an amazing piece of casting and the fact that she's got a voice that you just die for. And Angelic, she's got such yeah. a wonderful range as well. Um, so there's a, a number of things uh, uh, that um, that this film is is very very good and, and and I think Henry's magnificent in this and this is a really super arrangement of this particular number which leads up to the to the to the vocal you're referring to over the end titles. Yeah, no, and I agree. I agree. Let's uh, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is again from the film called Ten, and the uh, the cue is called It's Easy to Say.
One, uh, one piece you chose that actually has a very special meaning for me. Um, it's from the film Victor Victoria, and the uh, the cue is called Crazy World. It also had a vocal, but you uh, chose the instrumental. Hmm. And John, I'll tell you, I, I loved this so much, and you know how much I love John Barry, but at my wedding, at my wedding at the reception, my wife and I, our first dance was to Crazy World, this, this uh, version really? that you're playing here right now. Oh, yeah. We just loved it. In fact, I was just playing it a little while ago and she came in and hugged me, you know, because it was, you know, it just brought back all kinds of great memories. So this has very special meaning to me. And once again, I mean, it's, it's, this is a madcap movie. I mean, this is just, it's, it's insane. It's crazy, but you know, well, that's the song crazy world. Well, yeah. And it, and it works. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. It's an interesting choice. Uh, and as you say yourself, you know, it's the, the, the movie is, is a fascinating film. You've got a, um, you've got a woman playing a guy. Play, playing I, a I think I've lost count already. I, it's all very <laughs> confusing. Is it a guy playing a woman? No, it's a woman playing a guy. Playing no, it's a, a woman playing a guy playing a woman. Playing, right. Think, got it. Right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and again, we, you know, we, we've already excelled at the whole idea of, of, uh, of how wonderful um, uh, Julie Andrews is. Um, and again, it's that just fabulous combination of, of, um, fabulous combination of, of, of Blake Edwards and Hank to, to come together and go, right, we've really got something here. Um, and I wonder now, and I, I think this is a very good example, even though, as you said yourself, you're a massive fan of John Barry and a massive fan of, of lots of other composers. If you took, um, if you took Mancini out of the equation on these Blake Edwards pictures, I don't think they'd stand up, you know. I just don't think that he's such an important part of the the structure at, to, to to the entire picture. I mean, there's lots of musical numbers in this, um, yeah. and um, the uh, production, of course, originally was from the stage play, um, and uh, and then ran towards the uh, towards the film. But the uh, the 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 concept itself is 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 very. It's a very simple idea. Again, uh, not entirely run because of what was seen on screen. You know, these were these were ideas that were that were run prior to this and seeing how they would work. And I believe that the some of the arrangements that had happened had had uh, changed slightly prior to the um, uh, prior to the movie itself. But but uh, I know Blake was was very keen on on. Uh, on this being a, a major part in the film. And I'm, I'm also interested to, to, to know that of course you, it means that much to you that, um, that it was of course, uh, um, part of, of your, your wedding, your big day, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, it's, it's like a waltz, you know, I mean, that's kind of how I saw it. Cause I'm not a dancer, believe yep. me, but, uh, it was pretty easy to dance to that one. Um, yeah. It is, and and also, you know, that's the, these combinations of, of of work between Mancini and, and Leslie Brickus, and 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 having the time to to be able to put something like this together. And again, this is one of those ones where you don't necessarily have to have seen the film or the play. And it was a Tony Award nominated p- uh, play as well, but right. you don't have to uh, have seen that in order for the entire thing to wash over you. You know, the the the, the movie itself is just. It's fantastic. I mean, it's a wonderful, it's a great piece of casting, isn't it? They really Oh, do. yeah. And, and like you say, the music and the you know? songs are terrific, you know? Yeah. Uh, but from from the, the, the screen uh, to the stage or vicely versely, you know, it, it took a great many uh, different avenues to, to, to make it run. I think that's sort of the best way to summarize the, uh, is a joyful farce, you know, that, uh, mm. that Blake Edwards quotes himself as a, as a, a so I think we've got it right now. It's a woman pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman. Um, and the, the, the woman is sort of trapped in this conundrum of how to get out of it. Robert Preston, for me, steals the entire piece. I think he's absolutely spectacular. Oh, yes, um, he's terrific. He's oh, terrific. Oh, my goodness. It? But it is. It's a wonderful piece of music and, uh, and certainly a great score. And of course, filmed here in Britain. It was, uh, it was very popular over here. Well, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Filmed it, but, uh, well, let's, uh, Yeah, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is again from the film Victor Victoria, and the cue is called Crazy World, and it was uh, over the opening titles, this version that you're going to hear. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. 
Well, 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 we've had quite an exhaustive list of, uh, of things to play for Mancini's catalog. And, you know, again, we didn't even exhaust. There's plenty of other we've ones that we could have scratched the surface. Played. No, no. Exactly. I know. But I, I know that you uh, you actually went to a, a, a lot of effort to prepare for this. And I'm, I'm really grateful for you doing that. No, no, it's uh, a pleasure. I, I, and I've, and I've, you know, I've, not that I'm an expert by any stretch, but I certainly have learned a lot today from some of your research that you've done. Um, kind of going back to your podcast for a moment, how is it that uh, for those people that maybe haven't checked it out before, where do they uh, where do they find this podcast? Um, you can find it anywhere that you get your podcast. To be fair with you, um, wherever if you if you want to go to your podcast provider and type in behind the stunts you'll find me there um you can go to google and type in behind the stunts podcast and you'll find it um it's um you'll find it under my host provider which is called buzzsprout uh they're the people that uh, that provide it i'm part of the um pod dojo network uh which is a uh, um, five uh, different uh, podcasts and um, we're all under the same ha- hammer so either look under there look under pod dojo and you'll find me there um the podcast comes out every wednesday and the youtube channel again uh, behind the stunts on youtube you'll find it if you type it in comes out every friday and the two of them are different so there's always something on a on a on a on a Wednesday, and then you're not just going to see a carbon copy of what happens on the Friday. Uh, it there's something brand new. So it's two productions a week, um, and wow! Hopefully, you know you get a chance to to learn something exciting by it. But um, I've got uh, that's the only thing with doing this and doing it on a weekly basis because I'm going away at some point during the course of uh, this next couple of weeks, and then leading up to the the end of the month um, because uh, the start of next month, hopefully, I'm my book. Uh, we'll we'll get a chance to come out. Um, Finally. Finally, tell us about that real quick. In a too. long time. Well, it, the the book's called Stunts, Bond Stunts, and uh, kind of does exactly what it says on the tin. It is all of the action sequences uh, that have happened on the James Bond movies over the last uh, sixty years. Um, there are you know exclusive pieces there from stunt performers, photographs from performers. More importantly, there's uh, uh, exclusive interviews from performers, sadly no longer with us, uh, that took place a long time ago, and they've been compiled and they've been put together in relation to the Bond movies as we as we know them then. So you're going to get a, a brand new look at um, some of the stuff that you kind of take for granted within uh, action films and stunts these days. So that'll be out in October. So it's um, you, you have to plan ahead these things. I'm just saying, but in connection with the, with the podcast, it's a case of thinking right. I've got this, yeah, tool, which yeah. means I've got to do X, Y, and Z by such and such a date and get that done, you know? So it's a, it's a fair old slog, but it's great fun to do, you know, as you, uh, as you know yourself. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I'm not putting out nearly the amount of content that you are. It, uh, it almost sounds like you're the hardest working man in show business for crying well, out loud. Yeah, I, I would imagine James Brown's family have something to say about that. <laughs> but uh, as far as I'm concerned, I would say that's fair. Um, I'm, I'm always the, uh, the hardest working man in the office. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, even though I'm, it's populated by just me, uh, and even because uh, I'm in a band as well, so even when I'm in, in doing oh, wow. that, and uh, I'm, I like to think that I'm the hardest working man there. I am the drummer, after all, the engine room uh, behind the rest of the band. And uh, but wow. they, know, they know this. Now I didn't know that about you either that you were in a band. So that, you know, I've, I've learned a lot today. Ah, Listen. well, you see, for for maybe for Patreon users, you'll be able to. We'll tell you more. Who knows? <laughs> John, listen, my thanks again. I've really, I've enjoyed our talk and, and certainly enjoyed the, uh, the musical selections that you made. Folks, again, I want to encourage you to, uh, to check out his podcast and be looking uh, out for his book that will be coming out in October. Uh, you know, what else can I say? I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. Just thank you, John. Appreciate you joining us. Frank, it's an absolute pleasure. Anytime, buddy. Well, very good. Listen, uh, folks, there's not much else to say except this. And that is that my name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.